0: Section 8 of the Byzantine Empire This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Mike Botes The Byzantine Empire The Rear Guard of European Civilization by Edward Ford Section 8. Destruction of the work of the Heracliads The early death of Constantine V was for the Empire a disaster of the first magnitude. His hair was a lad of sixteen. Justinian II had all the fierce courage of his warrior line and a fair share of their capacity. But he had no time to acquire experience. He had not been brought up, like his father, in the school of adversity. He could recollect only victory and peace, and knew nothing of the terrible struggle that had been waged to win them. He was reckless and high-handed, callous to suffering, perhaps not untamed with insanity cursed in any case, with a savage temper, which led him into the commission of every kind of injustice and cruelty. At the opening of his reign, all went well. Constantine V had probably designed an expedition against the Christian kingdoms beneath Caucasus, with a view to bringing them into direct subjection to the empire. Iberia and Albania were invaded by Leontius, general of the Anatoliki, with a large army and reduced to subjection. Justinian was gratified by the news of victory, and, what was also of importance, considerable returns of tribute money. The caliph Abd al-Malik engaged in strife with powerful rivals, renewed the peace on terms outwardly far more favourable to the empire than the treaty between Constantine V and Moavia. The revenues of Iberia, Armenia and Cyprus were to be equally divided between the two empires, and the caliph engaged to pay annually 365,000 nomismata, about 228,000 pounds, 365 Arab coursers, and 365 slaves. But the young emperor, in return, agreed to the removal of the mardetes from Syria, and directed Leontius to cooperate with the caliph in effecting the deportation. Leontius behaved with gross treachery to his core-religionists. He caused the assassination of a chief who was the strongest opponent of the migration. Eventually the removal was carried out. 12,000 Mardete warriors were enrolled in the Roman army. Colonies of them were established at Atalia, in Pamphylia, and in Thrace. A portion still remained in Lebanon, but the advantage which the Empire had, derived from the operations of this warlike community, at the very gates of Damascus, was lost forever. 687. For the present, probably, the Roman government congratulated itself on the acquisition of a strong corps of experienced soldiers many syrians had taken advantage of the presence of the army of leontius to migrate under its escort into the empire justinian also persuaded or compelled a great part of the cyprian christians to settle in the northwest of asia minor needless to say all these forced migrations and settlements must have been attended with great difficulty and expense, and probably some loss of life. But they were at least well-intentioned. Having thus arranged affairs in Asia, Justinian in 689 marched against the Slavs of Balkania, who were again, owing to the arrival of the Bulgarians, in a state of ferment. The expedition was a complete success. The Bulgarians and Slavs entirely defeated. 30,000 prisoners were taken and enrolled as auxiliaries in the imperial army in Asia. At home, however, Justinian was already becoming unpopular. It is possible that he had some idea of emulating Justinian I. His general policy is often a caricature of, perhaps, consciously modeled upon that of the earlier emperor. Justinian II formed great schemes of foreign conquest. He also indulged in building on a grand scale. Naturally, he was soon forced into copying the worst part of his namesake's policy his fiscal extortion. The cruelty of his agents, Theodotus, one of the worst ecclesiastical politicians, and the eunuch, Stephanus, soon made the young emperor's name detested. Not without reason, for he made no attempt to restrain them. He is even said to have allowed Stephanus to beat his own mother, Anastasia, the widow of Constantine V, without inflicting upon him any adequate punishment. We can only hope that the shameful story is a fabrication. For Justinian's next and most fatal action, there is no excuse to be found. In 692 he declared war on Caliph Abd al-Malik, because the yearly subsidy was paid in new Arab dinars, bearing a religious inscription. The caliph would probably have remained at peace, but for this frivolous and outrageous quarrel-picking. But as it was, he was fairly well prepared, having put down rivals and revolts, and there can be no doubt that he was entirely in the right. Justinian led a large army, including a contingent of his Bulgars and Slavs, into Cilicia, and at Sebastopolis sustained a heavy defeat. His unwilling recruits deserted to the Saracens, and the prestige of victory passed again to the Crescent. All the work of Constantine V was undone. The Arabs pushed through Taurus into Asia Minor. Great part of Roman Armenia was lost, owing to the treachery of its governor, a native named Sembat, who deserted to the caliph. In 694 and 695 the line of Taurus was repeatedly penetrated, and the border provinces wasted. Justinian's misfortunes stimulated his cruelty to excess. He not merely massacred the wives and children of the Slavonic deserters, but he put to death numbers of corps who had remained faithful. He distrusted everybody. He imprisoned Leontius, who appears to have served him faithfully. Senators and officials were seized and executed on mere suspicion. He was detested alike by people, army and civil service, and had no supporters except Theodotus and Stephanus, who were more hated than himself. In 695 he suddenly released Leontius and appointed him to the command of the theme of Hellas. The general regarded himself as a doomed man, and in his despair, broke into revolt, with only a few friends and their servants to back him. They burst open the state prison, liberated and armed the hundreds of political prisoners, and, followed by them and by a mob of exasperated citizens, dashed at the palace. The guards were taken by surprise perhaps were disaffected. Justinian was captured with Theotodos and Stephanus. Leontius, with utterly misplaced mercy, for which he was later to pay with his life, spared the fallen tyrant the death penalty, but slit his nose and banished him to Kherson. Theodotus and Stephanus were delivered to the tender mercies of the mob, and their end is best passed over in silence. The deposition of Justinian was merely a stage in the period of anarchy, which was to last yet for 22 miserable years. So far, the succession of the emperors had for the most part been peaceful and unopposed. The elevations of Phocas and Heraclius are the only real exceptions to the general rule. But the enterprise of Leontius was merely the first act in a perfect carnival of military caprice and license. In the general disorder and lack of supervision, the civil administration lost rapidly inefficiency and the instinct of loyalty which had appeared to be greatly strengthened under the strong, brave, and popular Heracliads, was lost. The troops, engaged more and more in civil war, became demoralized. They were not often at their post on the frontier, and the Saracens made headway almost without opposition. At first these evils were not very apparent. Leontius was a capable man, and at any rate was not disposed to laze away his time on the throne. His first year was comparatively peaceful, but in 697 Lazica revolted to the Saracens, and Africa was invaded. Kerouan was once more taken, and Hassan, the Arab general, advanced upon Carthage and captured it, soon becoming master of the most of the province. Leontius was already preparing an army for its reconquest under John the Patrician. It arrived too late to relieve Carthage, but recaptured the city and several of the lost fortresses, but Abd al-Malik, neglecting the war in Asia, poured in reinforcements, The Romans, beaten in a sea fight, were finally forced to abandon Carthage, and this time the loss was not to be retrieved, A.D. 698. Some of the defeated Roman generals, fearing the anger of Leontius, plotted his deposition. The commander-in-chief was removed by assassination, and the fleet sailed for Constantinople. Leontius was seized and his nose slit; he was confined in a monastery, and Apsimarus, general of the naval theme, proclaimed emperor, under the title of Tiberius the third. Tiberius the third. was a strong, capable soldier, who in better circumstances might have founded a dynasty. He appointed his brother, Heraclius Caesar, and commander-in-chief in Asia, and Heraclius was not slow in proving that he was worthy of his name. In 700 he crossed Taurus, captured Mopsuestia in Cilicia, and burst into northern Syria. He laid waste the whole country, took many towns, captured Antioch, and finally withdrew unmolested, bringing back immense spoil and no less than 200,000 captives or emigrants. During 701 and 702, the war languished, Abd al-Malik being perhaps more occupied in Africa and Armenia. In 703, the province of Armenia for, Sophine, was invaded and overrun by the Arabs, but this was offset by a great victory gained by Heraclius in Cilicia. Next year he recovered the remainder of Cilicia and confirmed the reconquest by another great defeat of the Arabs. Cyprus was also recovered and repopulated. It appeared as if the Caesar Heraclius might rival the deeds of his namesake, but the year 705 was to see an end of all these fair hopes. Justinian II was still alive. After a long detention he had escaped from Kherson and taken refuge with the Turkish Khazars. He was well received by the Khan, who gave him his sister in marriage. The lady was baptized as a Christian by the name Theodora. Justinian's mutilation was probably more nominal than real. He certainly seems to have inspired his bride with devotion, if not love. Tiberius III, hearing of his adventures, bribed the Khan to give up the refugee. Theodora warned her husband he sprang upon the emissary who came to seize him, killed him, and fled out to sea, with his few attendants, in an open boat, in a violent storm. We shall drown, cried one frightened man, as the little craft laboured amid raging billows. It is for the emperor's sins. O Augustus, swear to pardon your enemies, and God may save us yet. No, shouted the desperate exile. God drown me here, and now, if ever I spare one of them, when my time comes. Justinian was most unkingly in his cruelty and recklessness, but at least he had a king's courage. The storm went down, and Justinian... Safely made the coast of Bulgaria. He ingratiated himself with King Terbel as easily as with the Khazar Khan. He promised him the title of Caesar and further strip of country south of eastern Hemus. Terbel was gained over to the exile's cause, and Augustus and Caesar started for Constantinople. The city was betrayed by Heracliad sympathizers. Tiberius III was taken in the palace, and Leontius dragged out of the monastery, in which he had been confined for seven years. They were bound, hand and foot, and laid side by side on the platform of Kathisma in the Hippodrome. Justinian sat with his feet on the necks of the vanquished emperors, while his triumph was celebrated by chariot races, and his adherents cried, Thou shalt trample on the lion and the asp. Then the two unfortunate men, who were certainly worthy of a better fate, were dragged around the city and beheaded. The great general Heraclius was seized in his camp, brought to Constantinople, and hanged with all his chief officers. For five years there was a reign of terror. The savage emperor maintained his recovered rule by sheer blind cruelty. The patriarch Callinicus, who had crowned Leontius and Absimarus, was blinded. Every one whom Justinian suspected of having borne the slightest part in his humiliation was doomed. The army was decimated by executions. The best of the defenders of the empire were sacrificed to Justinian's insane thirst for blood. Justinian's foreign policy was chiefly governed by his desire for vengeance in 706 he quarreled with terbel of bulgaria but the difference was composed the war with the saracens meanwhile dragged on its disastrous course abd al malik had died in 705 but his successor valid continued the struggle the victories of heraclius had evidently cowed the Saracens considerably. Though very feebly opposed by the decimated, bad-officered and ill-commanded Roman troops, they took four years to slowly recover Cilicia and the Armenian border. But in 710, after much desultory raiding, they firmly established themselves on Roman soil, by the storm of the great Cappadocian fortress of Tiana. Justinian seems to have made no serious effort to bar their progress. He was busy in the more congenial task of taking vengeance on his enemies within the Empire. In one direction only does he appear to have continued the policy which he had followed at the beginning of his reign and which, as has been suggested, had probably been traced out by Constantine V. He sent about this time a mission into Iberia, to keep the Caucasian mountaineers faithful to the Christian cause, and prepared to follow up his diplomacy by the dispatch of an army. The mission was under one of the imperial spatari, Aid de camp. Leo the Isaurian, the son of Assyrian settled in Thrace, who had rendered service to Justinian when on his way to recover his throne in 705. Having dispatched him, the emperor was seized with an insane fit of suspicion and held back the army, thereby leaving Leo helpless among the naturally distrustful and treacherous mountaineers. He only saved himself by dint of never-failing resource and pluck, but eventually succeeded in picking up a stray company of Roman troops, which had lost itself in the mountains, and made his way down to Phasis in 713. The affair is mentioned chiefly because it introduces us to a man who was presently to become famous, and immortal. There is a certain pleasure in turning for a moment from the blood-stained and disastrous annals of this gloomy period to Justinian's private life. He did not forget the brave barbarian bride who had risked so much for him, and one of his first acts was to send a fleet to bring her to him, if necessary by force. It met, however, with disaster in a storm, and the Khazar Khan wrote to his brother-in-law. One wonders if he had really intended to kidnap him, to say that no fleet was necessary. Why could he not send like a brother and friend? Justinian thereupon sent a small squadron, and the Khazar Empress, with a baby boy, she had borne to her husband during his absence, arrived safely at Constantinople. She was crowned Augusta by the terrible spouse, who really seems to have felt strong affection for her. The child was baptized Tiberius and proclaimed Augustus and colleague of his father. We hear no more of Theodora. She did not long survive probably the maiden of the steppes languished amid the perfumes of the palaces of the roman emperors but the little that we know of her is very much to her credit and her name deserves to be saved from oblivion having cleared his home provinces to the best of his ability of suspects justinian turned his attention elsewhere ravina and cherson were marked out for vengeance. Ravina was treated with barbarous cruelty. Even worse was the fate of Kherson, to which the Emperor had a special aversion as being the place of his exile. He sent thither a powerful expedition with orders to suck and destroy it. The commanders shrunk from the literal execution of the savage command But Justinian, hearing that the town had not been destroyed, ordered the expedition to return and complete its task. The fleet sailed, but mutinied, proclaimed an Armenian named Vardan, emperor, under the title of Philippicus, and returning, seized Constantinople while Justinian was absent at Sinope. Justinian at once marched in wild rage on the capital, but his army abandoned him en masse. His hideous cruelty had destroyed the last remnants of the loyalty of the troops to the Heraclid warrior-emperors, and he was seized and beheaded, emitting threats to the last. One child now alone remained of the great imperial line the little tiberius had been taken by his grandmother anastasia to the church of the virgin of Blachernae. philippicus sent a band of his followers under an officer named strutas to kill him they found the child clinging to the altar his neck hung with sacred relics clasping a fragment of the Holy Cross, while his honored grandmother, the widow of the great Constantine Pogonatus, stood beside him. The murderers forced her away, dragged Tiberius from the altar, tearing the holy relics from his neck, wrenching the sacred wood from his hands, and, carrying him to the door, cut his throat on the steps. There are red pages in Byzantine history, but in its naked horror, in its combination of hideous brutality with sacrilege, in its utter disregard of every law, human and divine, this murder of a helpless child in the presence of an aged relative seems the foulest of all. The Roman Empire had indeed been degraded to the very dust when its nominal head could order the commission of deeds that would ill become a king of Dahomey. Yet this horror was no more than the expression of the universal demoralization of which we have seen terrible traces in the reign of Heraclius, which had seemingly progressed still farther under his successors. Art, science, and literature were at a low ebb. Religion largely consisted in the practice of groveling rites, of superstition. Culture and enlightenment had nearly perished. We shall soon meet with a hideous example of the utter demoralization of the people at large, their hopeless ignorance, the shocking barbarity of the practices in which their craven superstition found its vent. Morally, the empire could sink no farther. Politically, the worst was yet to come. The first year of Philippicus was marked by widespread disaster. King Terbel invaded Thrace to avenge Justinian II. The Saracens captured Amasia, the home of the Achaemenids of Pontus, and practically made themselves masters of northeast Asia Minor. In the far west, they inflicted a crushing blow on Europe by the conquest of Spain. Philippicus was a mere glutton and drunkard, his one positive act was to make confusion worse, confounded by re-establishing the Monothelite heresy. In 713 the Saracens again invaded Asia Minor, pushed across Cappadocia and Laconia and stormed Antioch in Pisidia. The caliph Walid considered that the time had come to renew the attack on Constantinople. The way through Asia Minor was practically clear, and the enterprise was less difficult than it had been forty years before, while the Caliphate under Valid was much more powerful than it had been under Moavia. Not only Syria and Egypt, but the newly conquered Africa also were called upon to supply ships. The armament was to be such as had never been seen since the days of Xerxes. In 713 Philippicus was removed by a haphazard conspiracy, seized at his drink, blinded, and thrust into a monastery. In his place the conspirators crowned the first Secretary of State, Artemius, who assumed the title Anastasius II. He was a man of considerable capacity, but his name carried no weight, either with the army or the officials, who, since the death of the strong Justinian II, had usurped much of the imperial authority, and, despite his good intentions, he could do little. He did his best to prepare for the impending blow, repairing the walls of the capital and gathering in supplies. He appointed the Spatarius Leo, the Isaurian, general of the Anatolic theme. Artavasdos, an Armenian officer of approved capacity, was placed in charge of the Armeniaki, Anastasius undid the evil work of Philippicus by formally restoring orthodoxy in the church. In 715 he determined to make an attempt to burn the Saracen fleet, fitting out in the ports of Syria. The expedition, consisting of a strong fleet and the troops of the Opsician theme, was placed most unwisely under a civil official johannes the grand treasurer an able soldier was absolutely necessary for the conduct of so important an enterprise the appointment of johannes irritated the troops a mutiny broke out at rhodes johannes was killed and the fleet and army returned to depose anastasius the mutineers picked up at Adramitium a popular tax collector named Theodosius, and, presumably because they felt assured of perfect license under a non-entity, invested him with the purple. Theodosius the third was a quiet and amiable man, and seemingly accepted the crown in fear of his life. He was perfectly sensible of his unfitness for the post to which he had been elevated. The mutineers defeated Anastasius, and after a long blockade entered Constantinople. The new emperor amnestied all his opponents. He could hardly have done less than to compel his fallen rival to take the tonsure. For about a year he held his nominal imperatorship, but practically controlled only Constantinople and its neighborhood. Leo and Artavasdos had not been able to come up in time to the rescue of Anastasius, and the danger in Asia Minor was so great that they dared not leave their posts. But they paid no attention to the puppet emperor. Leo was more immediately in danger than his colleague as the fortress of Amorium, the present objective of the Saracens, lay in his own theme. After much maneuvering, some desultory fighting, and long negotiations with the Saracen commander-in-chief Maslama, Leo succeeded in saving Amorium, and in inducing the enemy to withdraw. Quite possibly, he was guilty of treachery or diplomacy, to use the polite modern word. It may be that his only object in getting rid of Maslama was to be able to declare war on and depose Theodosius. In September he advanced towards the Bosphorus and defeated the Obsechians commanded by the son of Theodosius. He then occupied Nicaea, from which famous city he could keep a watch on the saracens and at the same time negotiate with the theodosians at constantinople he was clearly in no hurry to grasp the prize perhaps too his position with the impregnable capital still defiant behind him and saracen hosts for all he knew Moving against him in front was not an enviable one. But early in 717 the Theodosians yielded. The great Saracen expedition was almost ready to start, and precious time was being wasted. Theodosius himself was perfectly ready to abdicate. His patriotic action deserves to be remembered. He retired into private life, and the crown was offered to Leo, who formally accepted it. He entered Constantinople on March 25, 717, and rode to the Church of the Divine Wisdom, where he was crowned, and after 22 years of agony, the empire had once more a master. End of section 8. Recording by Mike Botez.